Lord, now we look to your word, to one of the four harrowing accounts of your final hours on earth before you victoriously took your life back in the resurrection as you had promised. Thank you. Help me love you and worship you, Lord, as I share the message once more. Warm our hearts, Lord. We've been so distracted. We've been so burdened. Thank you for bearing those burdens. Thank you that your heart, you told us, is gentle and lowly and you understand. And you became one of us to be a perfectly empathetic Savior, to understand all of our temptations, and yet as the Son of God faced them with utter righteousness, triumph over them in perfect obedience to your Father so that that's what you could give for us. Thank you. In Christ's name I pray once more. Amen. If you'll open your Bible in Luke's Gospel, in the 23rd chapter. For years on and off here in the church, we've been journeying through Luke's Gospel. And in Luke 23, toward the end of the chapter, we come to the culmination of the life of Jesus on earth prior to the resurrection. Luke is going to use an ancient way of telling time. But if your translation is like mine and it refers to the sixth and the ninth hour, you should know that that refers to noon and 3 p.m. I'm in Luke 23, verse 44. It says, now about the sixth hour. In other words, noon. And there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, 3 p.m., while the sun's light failed, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. The Gospels sometimes strike me as simple, austere almost in the detail they give of such enormous moments. Luke a friend of people who knew Jesus in the flesh, as a careful historian reports when these things happened. The sun was at its height. They were killing Jesus in broad daylight. The trial, the mockery of a trial, both religious and civil, had been done in darkness. He had been beaten, mistreated, spit upon, and tortured even before he was tried. The witnesses could not agree. They contradicted one another. They were exposed as liars, and yet the machinery kept functioning to kill Jesus. He was given a judicial beating that, according to one ancient historian, often killed the victims before they were even crucified. A pilgrim had to help him carry his cross, but toward the end, Jesus bore the cross to which he was nailed, and now he is dying in front of everyone in the heat of the day. Sunlight brighter than this until it was dark. I wish Luke would explain. He doesn't tell me precisely why it was so dark, but I can imagine. 
John chapter 1, Colossians chapter 1, and Hebrews chapter 1 all announced to me that Jesus is the creator of everything that exists. And now the creator is being killed by some of his creatures. The Son of God who is life and who gives life is actually being put to death by men he made. And it's as if nature itself, inanimate, unthinking nature, knowing better, the atrocity that was being perpetrated upon the Son of God gave him at least the decency of darkness in these final hours. Not far from here, in a holy place, Luke tells us something that no one around the cross could have known. The curtain of the temple was torn in two. Matthew's gospel adds this fascinating detail. It was torn in two from top to bottom. That symbol I can read more easily. This must have been the curtain that separated the holy place from the most holy place, and it's tearing from top to bottom because God Himself is announcing judgment that will come on Israel. In 30-some years, Roman armies will surround Jerusalem and destroy it, just as Jesus predicted before they nailed Him to the cross. Men have judged the Son of God, but God will be vindicated. He will judge them in return. But much more importantly, much, pressure, much more vital than that, the tearing of the curtain signifies access to God. Into that most holy of places, only one man could go, and once a year from a specific tribe from the nation of Israel, only after having made sacrifices for his own sins. Now, Jesus who John the Baptist announced in John chapter 1 is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now at last the Lamb is being offered and the veil is being torn signifying that anyone, as you're going to see, even the worst of people will now have through Christ access to the very presence of God. Verse 46, then Jesus calling out with a loud voice said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit, and having said this, he breathed his last. Seven times Jesus spoke from the cross. These are his final words before dying. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. You remember very early in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus was baptized and began his ministry. There, Luke tells us in the same simple, austere style that the Holy Spirit descended in bodily form upon Jesus, taking the form of a dove, and a voice spoke from heaven saying, you are my beloved Son, I am well pleased with you. As the Son began His ministry, His Father announced to the Son and to the world that the Son pleased Him. Now the work is done and the debt is paid. And the Son speaks to the Father in the hearing of all and says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit because this sacrifice is going to be accepted and this sacrifice is going to be effective. Now when the centurion, that's a Roman soldier, and no mere soldier, that's an officer in charge of dozens of men. When the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God saying, certainly this man was innocent. And that's surprising. Luke later in the next volume of his work in the book of Acts will introduce us to a different centurion 
who will trust Jesus from hearing the witness from one of these disciples. His name was Peter. He had denied Jesus earlier. But Peter is going to make the comeback that Jesus promised to him. He is going to be shocked himself by delivering the gospel to that centurion named Cornelius this day. Another Roman soldier evidently there to safeguard the death of Jesus. Fearing perhaps a riot has, a riot has brought a platoon with him and has men ready and armed and is watching all this, perhaps not taking place in it, but making sure that it is not stopped by Jesus' disciples. And he says, this instrument of empire, this tool of wrath, this instrument of death called a Roman officer, praised God and said the man that died in front of me was innocent. And the Greek word can also mean righteous. Even in death, Jesus is gathering unlikely people to him. Just before, I didn't read the story because I preached it to you last Sunday, but just before this, one of the thieves on the cross beside Jesus in the last moments of his life recognized his sins, asked Jesus to remember him when he came in his kingdom, and Jesus promised that man, today you will be with me in paradise. All the crowds that had assembled for this spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, returned home beating their breasts. That ceremonial Jewish grieving. Maybe now remorse sweeps through the crowd. Maybe having seen these miracles of darkness. Maybe having heard the sun speak for the last time. Maybe now a realization is coming upon some of them. And all his acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. Now there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea. He was a member of the council, a good and righteous man who had not consented to their decision and action, and he was looking for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate. Remember him, that coward who repeatedly said, he's, Jesus is not, in a, is not guilty of anything, but consented ultimately to release a murderer instead of Christ? This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then he took it down and wrapped it in a linen shroud and laid him in a tomb cut in stone where no one ever yet had ever yet been laid. It was the day of preparation and the Sabbath was beginning. The women who had come with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid then they returned and prepared spices and ointments. On the Sabbath they rested according to the commandment. So you see all kinds of people around the cross of Christ. You see a man guilty enough to deserve the cross and recognize it even as he dies in it, turning to Christ at the last moment for mercy and receiving the assurance of the forgiveness of his sins because Jesus is dying for those sins. He's dying for that man right beside him. You see a soldier, hardened by the horrors of war, hardened by the cruelty of Rome, witness the death of the Son of God and evidently turn to God in praise and recognize the reality of who Jesus is dying right in front of him. And you see a religious man 
someone on the council who we know nothing else about him, but he was part of the religious machinery that had put Jesus to death, but he did not agree with their decision, and he, like the criminal, is also looking for the coming of the kingdom. This man does what he can. He takes the body of Jesus from the cross, gives it a dignified burial. In fact, a burial so dignified that it was one of the nicest things that Jesus enjoyed. He enjoyed in death better treatment than he received in life. The king is actually going to be placed in an expensive tomb used by no one else. He alone will occupy it, but not for long. And the women, heartbroken, you can read the rest of their story in the chapter that follows that announces the resurrection of Jesus and the women who are quietly going to prepare to honor him, will bring him one final offering that they will not use because they're preparing something for his burial. They're preparing something to honor his dead body. But Jesus, as promised on Sunday morning, is going to take back his life with the very authority of God, proving that when he spoke to God, he spoke to his own Father, that he was right to commend his spirit to his Father, that the Father had spoken the truth when he said, you are my beloved Son and I am pleased with you. All of this was done on the cross for all kinds of people. For religious people who hate the Son of God. For religious people who turn from their religion and trust the Son of God. For soldiers, some who have served honorably, some who have served disgracefully. For criminals who deserve death. For religious, simple women who are doing the best that they can. For all kinds of people in all different nations, Jesus is dying on Good Friday, veiled only by darkness, his death tearing the veil between the holy and the most holy place. This is your Savior. This is what we are remembering. And now, the judge of all the earth, the author of life and the conqueror of death, even now his good news is being preached around the world. His resurrection will be announced to roughly half the world before we celebrate it here on the west coast of the United States. But everywhere the gospel has gone through the faithfulness of his sacrificial and loving disciples, like yourselves, Jesus has been believed and he has saved people from every tribe, tongue, and nation because the death of the Son of God give, gives access to God himself to all kinds of people. The only question is not whether his death can, and resurrection can save, but what people witnessing his death, hearing his death so many years later, what they will make of Christ. If you're not absolutely certain of your relationship with Jesus, I invite you to look at yourself and the varied reactions around his cross. Simple remorse, last-minute faith, simple declaration of righteousness like the soldier. Find yourself somewhere in that vast, vast crowd and trust Jesus and make him your Lord and Savior. Put him in charge of your life. He will not disappoint you. He has never disappointed anyone who trusted him because he died for sinners to make them sons and daughters. He died for enemies to make them friends of God. And that's what we're celebrating tonight. Lord Jesus, we now take a moment to worship you. And in our own simple 
homemade way make a little symbolic action to remember a real cross where a real Savior died. As we write these words and remember, Lord, what you covered with your death for us, make us grateful, make us worshipful. And as we move past our simple symbolism to something you've actually commanded us to do, and we take communion, Lord, may you be praised and may you be pleased. May our worship, our gratitude, our humility in the presence of your death be sweet to you. Your word says that you despise the shame of the cross because you looked to the, ahead to the joy that was set before you after the cross. Gatherings like this, in this parking lot, in these simple conditions with the hum of traffic going by, this is the sort of thing you look to from the cross and you took joy in knowing that it would make us your beloved sons and daughters. So we thank you, and we praise you, and we do this to glorify you. Amen.